Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Justin Trudeau has rarely been as popular as he is right now. His most recent approval poll showed a huge surge. 54% of Canadians endorse him. That's up 21 points since the end of last winter. Those are like 2016 numbers. Cover of GQ, second coming of Trudeau mania, majority government numbers. It's easy to miss that since he always has some very angry critics who are very loud online. But the consensus seems to be, across all age groups of Canadians asked, that the prime minister is doing a great job of handling the pandemic. He is front and center all the time. He looks accountable. He is listening to the experts and striking the right tone with kids and with their parents. When it comes to the coronavirus, most of us seem to agree that the prime minister and his government have got this. But while they supposedly have got this. What's gotten away from them? And what have they gotten away with? Public attention is a limited resource. There are only so many things that people can keep track of at once. Only so many stories we can all follow and, you know, only so much emotion that we can direct at any one issue. At the moment, we are all full up. And for some, that presents an opportunity. I think with a lot of people focused on um, pandemic-themed stories, it's possible this fell through the cracks. And the idea of doing this during this coronavirus outbreak is very, very uh, indecent, in my opinion. I have never, ever seen the employment data be disclosed before uh, its official release. Never. The government announces one day that they have struck a new deal with the Saudis. At the very end of the press release, in the last couple lines, it says, oh, and also we've begun to start approving export permits again. 
the lingering doubt on some people's mind is, you know, why was this particular field, environmental monitoring, sort of pushed by the wayside during the pandemic? Today's show is about a bunch of stories that, if this had been any other time, would probably be a much bigger deal. Some of this is stuff that we've just been too distracted to notice, and maybe that's not anyone's fault. But in other cases, you will hear that our governments may have been actively taking advantage of our focus on COVID-19 to slip some things past us while we weren't looking. We are going to tell you what those things are. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Logan Edgelow, Madison Limer, Caddy Brady, Phil Goodfellow, Camille DeSuma, Gina Merlin, Mercedes Verz, and Alex. This is Alex of the Beguiling Books and Art in downtown Toronto. I support Canada Land because Jesse supports us. As a brick-and-mortar bookseller, I know both the value and the tenuousness of independent media in Canada. If we can't at least support one another, what chance do we have against the big guys? This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. On April 10th, the Canadian government said that it fully supports the United Nations call for a global ceasefire during the pandemic. A statement from federal ministers said that the Canadian government was, quote, working hard to prioritize the protection of the most vulnerable during this pandemic. But the day before that, the Globe and Mail's Stephen Chase reported that Canada has again started approving military goods exports to Saudi Arabia. Here is reporter Stephen Chase. In March 
2020, uh, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, the government struck a deal with the Saudis that would enable them to start issuing export permits again for these labs. Back in 2014, before Justin Trudeau was prime minister, the Harper government landed what they bragged was the largest advanced manufacturing export contract in Canada's history. And that was a deal worth uh, between 14 to $15 billion to supply light armored vehicles to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And this was uh, a huge deal for a plant in London, Ontario, which is effectively a branch plant of an arms manufacturer called General Dynamics. But what happened in 2015 was Trudeau took power and uh, it came time in early 2016 for him to approve the export of these vehicles. And that's because uh, these vehicles are not allowed to be exported unless the government of the day believes that there is no risk they will be used to commit human rights violations or more specifically to be turned against the local population. And uh, in a controversial move, the Trudeau government approved uh, a lot of these vehicles for export, issued the export permits for a lot of the vehicles, but not all of them, which is important later in the story. Uh, And this was a very controversial Uh, The government came under attack because at the same time, the Saudis had grown increasingly troublesome in terms of their human rights record, in terms of their treatment of dissidents, women, activists, and of course, uh, this war they're prosecuting in neighboring Yemen. So that's the sort of, that sets the table. As I recall, the initial posture of Trudeau, I remember him just trying to downplay the whole issue as if to say these were not weapons of war and saying, ah, there's just a bunch of Jeeps. They they are nothing but tanks on wheels. They're more maneuverable tanks and they are made to be outfitted with cannons and machine guns, but we just don't do that part ourselves. No, but we assemble them. It goes into a complete package. It's by no means uh, a fancy Jeep as, as a uh, one of the business lobby members famously said. Um, and then I think that the operative question became, I mean, the law is, is you know, there's laws, uh, international laws, you know, I think any Western country um, signs on to like not arm brutal dictatorships and, and uh, bad actors. Our law, Canadian law, as you referred to earlier, we cannot sell weapons of war if there's a substantial risk that the export would result in a serious violation of human rights. And I believe that that. Uh, there were videos that emerged of that, just that happening. Right. Uh, there are two things going on. One is Eastern Province is a region of Saudi Arabia uh, where the sort of the minority group in Saudi Arabia is the largest population. That's the Shia, the Shia Muslims. And the Shia Muslims are poor, disenfranchised. And the sort of dissident population in Saudi Arabia has grown since the Arab Spring, and it really grew in in Eastern Province. These became pitched battles and and fights between the the Shias and the government. Uh, And the the Saudis grew tired of the fact that they couldn't maneuver their trucks through these and their vehicles through these narrow streets. So they started to destroy the neighborhood. And we saw video of them using two kinds of exported Canadian vehicles. One by Teradyne, which is a, a Toronto area company, which also makes 
a, a similar type of, of up-armored vehicle. And then we saw General Dynamics, the older version of these same labs being wheeled into action. Then right next door in Yemen, you can see clearly, uh, because the Houthi militia likes to brag about it, you can see videos of them fighting the Saudis in their Canadian labs. And because the border, uh, the skirmishes go back and forth across the border, they might be in Yemen sometimes, they might be in Saudi sometimes. Uh, it's hard, it's impossible to know. But there is plenty of, uh, of video footage of, of these things being used. So what happens then is there's an investigation. It's not released until the winter, the early winter of 2018. And at that point, we found out they'd also suspended the awarding of new export permits. And when you suspend the awarding of new export permits, all the ones you've already issued are still valid. So you can keep using them, right? It may not be, in some ways, it may not pause the deal. It may mean if you need new ones, you can't get any new ones. And often they approve, you know, a whole bunch ahead of time. And you can use those as your chits to, to keep exporting. So it's not clear that had any impact the first time on the on the lab deal. Stephen, there are videos. I mean, how are they able, like there's literally a smoking gun. How How is the Trudeau government able to maintain the position that these Canadian-made weapons are not being used uh, to to trample on people's human rights when, when there is video evidence of just that happening? Well, uh, the Global Affairs Department investigated these incidents and concluded that the use of force was proportionate, necessary, and timely. They were assured by the Saudis that even though they were fighting against minority Shia militants, their use of force was proportionate, necessary, and timely. They identify what they call a credible military source, but they don't give us the name. And the military source assured them that there was no evidence Saudi civilians were deliberately targeted by Ministry of Interior Forces. So the government department that's responsible for selling and sort of setting up deals also investigated it, uh -huh. came up with a report in which we were assured that there was no conclusive evidence that vehicles were involved in human rights violations, um, even though our, our vehicles had been filmed uh, being used against the people of Eastern Province. It doesn't seem to be anything wrong here. These people were, were bad actors and nothing, nothing untoward had happened. And they cleared the, uh, the labs at the, and the other vehicles at this point. Stephen, it seems to me at this point, there's at least some recognition on the part of, uh, the Trudeau government, that there's a problem that they have to somehow mitigate, but it feels like they're trying to mitigate it and trying to do a dance where they can kind of, you know, uh, recognize that there's a problem, but still continue with the deal. And then comes the grisly murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who uh, walks into, to refresh people's memory in 2018, uh, enters the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to get some documents related to his upcoming marriage, is never seen again is dismembered inside and uh, after denying and evading, it is ultimately uh, acknowledged, revealed, and, and um, really confessed that this was a premeditated murder uh, perpetrated by Saudi Arabia. And the CIA later concludes that uh, none other than the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman himself ordered Khashoggi's assassination. Yeah, at that point, they suspended the awarding of new export permits. And this is where it probably would have had more of a bite for General Dynamics. And you had uh, Christian Freeland talking about uh, how they were suspending export permits. And you had Trudeau saying, I I'm going to find a way to, I'm trying to find a way to get out of this contract. And after that, I, I felt like, okay, 
journalism has won here. We heard, uh, you know, Trudeau doing his very virtuous voice, you know, Canada is committed to upholding human rights and we're committed to to, to upholding the rights of journalists. So, uh, you know, that, that that that's the kind of tone that we hear from him a lot of times, but now it's in direct contradiction to how Canada's been acting. So here they are getting kind of high-handed. I mean, I don't know how you can say things like that and still provide these massive tanks. And, and, and I guess at that point I concluded, okay, it's been years in the making, but we're no longer going to be selling these arms to Saudi Arabia. And, and that's when I, I stopped paying attention to this story. Tell me what happened in April of this year. Actually, think about it now. That was uh, mm-hmm. um, actually March 2020. All of a sudden, the government announces one day that they have struck a new deal with the Saudis that will improve uh, on the deal they had before. And the, and the improvement is they're allowed to talk about the deal now. Um, whereas before it was, uh, it was a penalties in the deal to prevent them from telling people just uh, what was in the contract with the Saudis. And now they're allowed to talk about it. And they can say that uh, if they were to break this contract, there'd be penalties up to including the full value of the contract, which is $14 billion. So at the very end of the press release, in the last couple lines, it says, oh, and also we've begun to start approving export permits again. Mr. Champagne uh, said in the conference call to explain this that they did need to issue more export permits to complete the deal. All right. Now, we haven't mentioned somebody here who, uh, in addition to your reporting for the Globe and Mail, can take some credit for uh, holding government's feet to the fire for this. And that is the academic Daniel Turp, who has launched a lawsuit against the government for allegedly breaking the aforementioned law. Mm-hmm. He's commented on the timing of this information dump. And here's what he had to say about it on CBC's As It Happens. Well, it was it was quite uh, startling to have announcement just before the Easter or Passover break, you know, as if they wanted this not to be uh, well known or or read. And the idea of doing this during this coronavirus outbreak is is something that is really uh, very very uh, indecent, in my opinion. What's your opinion, Stephen? Were they releasing this information strategically at a time when they thought people would not care? I don't know. I can't find anything to prove that they timed it like this on purpose, but the timing is worth remarking on. You have a health crisis that has prompted an economic crisis, which has thrown millions of people out of work, and you've got a factory in, in London, Ontario, which actually is deemed essential, so it's still working and pumping out the labs, and it needs more export permits, or presumably it can't export anymore and therefore has to stop producing them. You know, Terp also says that he just doesn't buy this idea that we would owe them $14 billion. Uh, and the idea that, you know, well, we're going to have to break our own ru- law. I know that their position is that we're not breaking the law, but I mean, I think there's video evidence contradicting that. Um, we could simply stiff them, couldn't we? Yes, I imagine we could. And on the question of the deal, that it, you know, again, I'm no expert in, in contracts, but it's a remarkable deal where you can face such onerous penalties even for talking about the contract, which is what we now understand. It's, uh, the Saudis must be very good deal makers to be able to bind a government to silence about the, the essentials of a contract. It does kind of raise questions about um, the, the, who negotiated it in the first place and why they would agree to terms like this. And again, that goes back to the whole problem of arms sales. 
is that if you're going to be a country, a G7 country producing arms, you probably can't sell them to other G7 countries or even other highly developed countries because they have their own arms industry. So it forces you to go further abroad for customers. And then it takes you uh, into the realm of a customer base, which may be a bit more dodgy, may have a lot more reputational risk. And and that's that, That's what comes from, from being in this industry is you're probably going to be looking for buyers among countries that don't share all your values. Stephen, we haven't even, we haven't even mentioned Raif Badawi. No, we haven't. And Mr. Badawi uh, is in the background of this story the entire time. He is the imprisoned Saudi writer who was sentenced to jail for 10 years and lashed for insulting Islam. And Mr. Trudeau, uh, just after he was elected in 2015, visited with his his wife, uh, who lives in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Uh, both Mr. Badawi's kids and his wife have, have emigrated to Canada and have been accepted as refugees, uh, asylum seekers from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So he's been in jail this entire time. And Mr. Trudeau, when he met with Mr. Badawi's wife back in 2015, had tweeted that he would do everything in his power to to release her, to free her, and he, he even tweeted free Raif Badawi. We only hear about him sporadically over the next few years. Uh, he he's, remains in jail. Uh, he hasn't been released. The Saudi government says since he's not a Canadian citizen, we don't have any standing. And uh, through this all, we have sold hundreds of, of labs to the Saudis, but not managed to secure his freedom. I mean, maybe Trudeau could get Raif Badawi freed. Maybe he couldn't. But it's kind of just reading his, his tweet from back then saying, oh, important discussion with uh, Badawi's wife today on her husband's inhumane treatment in Saudi Arabia. Hashtag free Raif. You know, he's hashtagging free Raif and he's selling arms to the people who imprisoned him. It, it, it feels kind of gross. It's it's hard to believe that it's been we've we've a lot of words have been spilled on Mr. Badawi, but nothing's actually happened. I guess just finally, I want to ask you, it, it, it seems like this is an issue that it's been tremendously difficult for it to get traction with the public. And and uh, I think that, you know, we're talking about um, over the course of years, a commitment to drawing out each fact and each transgression and each hypocrisy. Um, and the stars aligned momentarily with the murder of Khashoggi, where it seemed like it was possible to get interest and buy-in and, you know, the requisite moral outrage from the Canadian public. And I kind of feel like that moment might have passed. I don't know if you've given that any thought. What do you think, Stephen? Yes, I think that um, now that we have an economic crisis caused by a public health crisis, every job is precious and there is no way that uh, people are going to accept any kind of measures that are going to lose jobs, especially advanced manufacturing jobs in Ontario's heartland. So, but I am curious what's going to happen with that plant in southwestern Ontario. It supports, according to General Dynamics and the government, about 2,500 to 3,000 jobs around the country. And these are suppliers uh, who provide the parts and everything necessary for the assembly of these labs. So this would be a major hit to the economy of London, Ontario and southwestern Ontario if we were to lose these jobs. And in fact, this plan has been there for decades and decades and decades. It was created as an industrial development project. So in some ways, it's, it's, it's too big to fail. You can't lose that many jobs in southwestern Ontario and still ex- expect to get elected in that city. I don't think that's on the table now. However, 
One of the things you didn't mention, uh, and I didn't mention, was Canada also welcomed uh, a refugee from Saudi Arabia um, quite publicly and openly, a woman, a young woman who is fleeing persecution from her family there. And, and that, that I am told by people who know uh, far more about the Saudi-Canada relationship than me, that that was also exacerbated the relationship. We have no ambassador to Saudi Arabia. They have no ambassador to Canada. What is interesting is this was not the first contract Canada has signed with the Saudis, but this is one of the biggest. It's been six years now since we signed the contract, a contract that was supposed to last 14 years. I am curious whether there's going to be negotiations for another contract or whether this will be the end of the line. Recently, the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, Karen Pugliese, warned us that ATIP, the system that journalists and researchers use to access information from the government, has fallen into even worse shape than it was in before, which was really atrocious. Partly, this is because so many civil servants are now working from home, and a lot of the documents that journalists request, emails, budgets, data, it all hasn't been properly digitized. The pandemic has broken the system, she said. The system that most journalists would agree was already quite broken. So at a moment when our government is spending kind of an unprecedented uh, expenditure of billions of dollars in response to this pandemic, journalists cannot properly report on what is happening because we just can't access the information that we need. But while the official way that journalists are supposed to be able to extract information from the government uh, is just completely failing, there is an unofficial way that one news outlet was able to get some numbers from the government, unofficially, through a leak that seems to have originated in our federal government itself. Paul Vieira of the Wall Street Journal explains. So on Friday morning, May 8th, I was getting things ready around the house, uh, but uh, had to get to my computer around 8 a.m. To prepare for the release of Statistics Canada's most important piece of economic data, which was the jobs report for April. And there was a lot of anticipation about the April report because it was expected to be very bad, even worse than the prior month, which showed a million job losses in Canada. I mean, the consensus among investment traders or uh, economists was for a 4 million loss of jobs in April because of the coronavirus. As I was uh, getting ready on my laptop, I got a message from someone saying they've never seen anything like this. And I clicked on the link and it was basically Bloomberg News had a story citing a person familiar with the data suggesting exactly what the job loss was, which was nearly 2 million or 1.99 million and what the unemployment rate was. Um, it was a phenomenal disclosure of data because Statistics Canada runs a pretty tight ship as to when the data is released to ensure everyone gets it at the same time and that no one has an unfair advantage uh, in having that information and being able to profit from it. I have never, ever seen the employment data be disclosed before uh, its official release. Never. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you recall, Jesse, but when Donald Trump would tweet about how he was looking forward to uh, good news on the jobs report or something along those lines, people started criticizing that as a potential breach that he may have been signaling 
to people what the jobs report was going to say. Like I've never seen anything uh, like this be disclosed prior to its official release. It would be like a Bank of Canada interest rate announcement uh, getting out to people before the scheduled release. If bond traders or currency traders had this information, they could definitely make some money, you know, and as we saw, once the numbers came out, you noticed that there was noticeable trading in the Canadian dollar and that it strengthened slightly versus the US. This went to a particular set of readers, not just in Canada, but in the United States and all around the world who uh, follow the markets uh, intensely and follow what comes up on the Bloomberg news terminals closely uh, for any trading opportunities. People who have Bloomberg terminals, um, they would have received this, I I guess it was around from my reporting, I I think it was around 747, maybe 749. Uh, And once they saw that, that probably would have instantly triggered trades by traders or their programs or such. I think it's relevant to bear down on on the Bloomberg aspect. You know, to have a Bloomberg terminal, you got to pay two thousand dollars a month. Essentially, this is giving the financial sector, the trading industry, thirty forty minute head start on the rest of society to do something with this information. Yeah, that uh, that is a that is a correct point of view. That yes, who leaked it? We don't know. Statistics Canada says there's an investigation going on, but. You know, a few days after this all occurred, it brought an end to a long-standing practice it has of providing an advanced look at the jobs data to at least four government departments and the Bank of Canada. And uh, those departments would have been finance, the industry Canada, the employment department, and the Privy Council office, which advises the prime minister. Let me see if I got this straight. Stats can somehow their data gets leaked and the Trudeau government up and down says this is an outrage and we have to get to the bottom of this and we have to make sure this never happens again. And Stats can's response to needing to prevent any future leaks is that they stop giving advanced data to the Trudeau government itself. I can't make a determination about how this all got out. But obviously, Statistics Canada moved rather quickly in terms of shutting down where they believe there was uh, inappropriate disclosure. What are you going to do to stop this data from leaking? They said, well, we're not going to give it to the following people anymore. Was it was, was it anyone else on that list but, but federal government or no, bodies? It was just, the, it was just the, four, uh, the five bodies that I've uh, outlined, uh, namely um, finance, industry, employment, Privy Council office slash PMO, and the Bank of Canada. Would it be a reasonable interpretation of that to suggest that StatsCan is saying we can no longer trust the government with this information? Uh, I think uh, some people have made that reasonable interpretation, and that's, uh, I think, with this move, they are at least covering their bases in terms of where they think it might have happened. If not for the coronavirus pandemic, do you think maybe this would have been a bigger deal? Uh, I think it would have been. I mean, there were a few outlets that did follow up on this, uh, but it wasn't widespread. I think with a lot of people focused on um, pandemic-themed stories, it's, it's quite possible this fell through the cracks.
So, of course, police powers have expanded across Canada. In many municipalities, you can get a big ticket for stopping in the park, for letting your kids climb the monkey bars, for having a dinner party. There are new laws in Newfoundland that empower police with the ability to send anyone back on the ferry they came from if the cops do not deem their travel essential. These new police powers are not uncontroversial. There are well-founded worries that the cops will not be enforcing these new laws equally. Most people accept that the public does require extra oversight right now. But what about industry? In Alberta, while police have more powers to keep people in check, some of the workers who are supposed to keep a watch on the oil and gas industry for the purpose of protecting the environment, well, those people are temporarily out of a job. Here is senior producer Kasia Mihailovich talking to Sharon Riley, who covers Alberta for the Narwhal. Big question. What's been going on during this pandemic with oil and gas in Alberta? And I kind of wanted to start back in April with Trudeau's announcement about orphan wells. Sure. Yeah. So Alberta's oil and gas sector has been struggling for a while now. Uh, Then, as you mentioned, this thing called a pandemic happened, which certainly did not help the sector. And at the same time, there is a big global supply issue unrelated to the pandemic in a lot of ways that happened. So it's sort of what has been described as a double whammy facing the oil and gas industry. So there are about 90,000 inactive wells in Alberta. Uh, An inactive well is one that's just no longer producing oil or gas, um, but it hasn't been orphaned. An orphan well, which there are a couple thousand of those as well, is one that's been left behind by a company that went bankrupt or is defunct in one way or another and has been taken on by the Orphan Well Association. So Trudeau announced $200 million in loans to clean up orphan wells and then another billion dollars to go to the Alberta government, which they would then distribute that money to companies that would clean up inactive wells across the province. So that money is actually more like a grant and that goes to private companies. Okay, so why why does the Orphan Well Association get a loan and the companies that are actually still functioning getting a grant? <laughs> That's the million dollar question, $200 million question, I guess. The Orphan Well Association is supposed to be industry funded. The idea being that if you're going to drill in Alberta, you have to pay for the wells that are left behind by companies that go bankrupt. So it's kind of a collective industry responsibility. But people have been noting that there have been a lot of loans to the Orphan Well Association lately, uh, over half a billion dollars in loans. So with an annual levy and a range of like 60 to 65 million, it, you can imagine it'll take a long time to A, pay back half a billion dollars in loans, and B, actually clean up all of the wells that are scattered across the province that are orphans. People might recall you from the Commons episode that was all about orphan wells, but can you just tell me quickly why why is like a, a well that is no longer in operation, but just like left out in the countryside, a problem? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem. It could just sit there for a long time and maybe it doesn't cause any problems, but oftentimes it does. Um, The first problem is that that site can't be used for anything else. So if it's on farmland, it can't be farmed. If it's in, um, like, near a residential area, that area, which happens more often than you'd think, that area can't be developed. You know, you can't build more homes there. 
But there's also the potential for leaks as well as uh, methane emissions. Has that happened before? That there have been leaks? Leaks from orphan wells. Oh, yeah, certainly. (laughs) Um, They're supposed to be inspected on a regular basis, but yeah, it's um, fairly well documented that there are leaks from orphan and inactive wells across the province. Is this work that can happen now during the pandemic, the cleaning of the orphan wells? That's something that's interesting that was addressed explicitly when these programs were announced. We had the Minister of Environment and Parks in Alberta, Jason Nixon, say that, yes, he absolutely thought this work could be done. So around the same time as the federal announcement of money going to the orphan wells, the provincial government, Alberta, also had a few announcements of their own about the environment in oil and gas. Tell me about those. Yes. So there were a series of announcements that came out sort of quietly from the Alberta Energy Regulator. And they started to come out around the end of March. First off, we had a bunch of announcements about environmental monitoring that would have to occur during the pandemic. And it was sort of stated in these fairly broad ministerial orders that it was not in the public interest to be doing a lot of reporting on environmental monitoring. So that would mean that if you are normally required to monitor, say, sulfur dioxide emissions at a, a sour gas plant, you would still need to do that according to these orders, but you wouldn't have to tell the Alberta Energy Regulator what you found unless there was some sort of emergency. And then about a month later, which interestingly was at almost exactly the same time as when Alberta was starting to announce its relaunch plan. And just a few days before they announced they were going to reopen golf courses and provincial parks, there were a few decisions made um, that were posted on the Alberta Energy Regulators website about suspending environmental reporting um, and monitoring in some oil sands projects. So what that means is that where the oil sands companies were supposed to be collecting data and monitoring what's happening, they were just no longer going to have to do that uh, indefinitely. And that's not for all monitoring, but for things like stack emissions or going out and looking to see if there are birds dying at tailings, ponds, monitoring volatile organic compounds. There's a long list of the different environmental monitoring programs that were just also suspended Uh, Okay. Um, I guess, (laughs) was there a rationale that you were given by the provincial government about why this is not in the public interest to know how much pollution is coming out of oil and gas? Initially, with those first series of announcements, the Alberta Energy Regulator was saying, if we need to know this in the future, we will go back and ask. The data will still be there. We'll figure it out. Now, what's been said with the oil sands monitoring is that it's not safe for workers to go out and do the work, say, with wildlife monitoring programs or testing groundwater or doing stack emission tests or any of the different programs that were suspended. Major companies like Syncrude and Suncor confirmed to me that they did ask the Alberta Energy Regulator to please give them a break, essentially. Okay. How does that explanation stack up for you? 
Well, I mean, I did speak to someone who works in environmental monitoring, and she did say, you know, she's grateful that she's not at an oil sands camp right now. There has been an outbreak at at least one oil sands camp in Alberta. But at the same time, if we talk about what Minister of Environment and Parks Jason Nixon was speaking about just a few weeks before, about how he wanted to keep people working and how... He believed it was safe for workers to go out and do reclamation work on oil and gas projects. There's a bit of a disconnect there. And that that started to get people asking, you know, why is some work seen as unsafe and other work is not? And so I had, you know, a person who used to work pretty high up in government of Alberta saying, like, why are there construction workers doing work on my condo building right now? But we can't have someone go out and check and see if there are any birds landing on tailings ponds. I think a lot of people are asking how long these suspensions and deferrals will go on for, and also whether this will be used as a push for a loosening of environmental monitoring or reporting requirements in the future. We know what the government of Alberta's priorities are. I think it's really, really gung-ho about supporting oil and gas. We also have Uh, an associate minister of red tape reduction that passed the Red Tape Reduction Act last year. All of these things could potentially be seen as red tape that could pave the way for industry to operate more smoothly if they were gone. So I think the... The lingering doubt on some people's mind is, you know, why was this particular field, environmental monitoring, sort of pushed by the wayside during the pandemic a a little more eagerly than a lot of other services were? Do you have any sense what the number of people who work in oil and gas extraction is compared to the number of people who work in the kind of monitoring side of these sites? I don't have firm numbers for you, but I can pretty reasonably guess that there would be far fewer people working in environmental monitoring than there would in operations. And I should also note that companies like Syncrude, which has a huge oil sands mine in northern Alberta, did confirm that they have also reduced other staff. Um, It's not just people who work on environmental monitoring. And one thing that was pointed out to me by someone who uh, used to work for the Alberta Energy Regulator is that even reducing other staff like maintenance staff from the perspective of someone who's a toxicologist who's looking at environmental risk, that actually raises the chance that something could go wrong environmentally. And if no one is doing that monitoring, she she was extra concerned about that. How has the pandemic affected your reporting on oil and gas in Alberta, which is its own kind of monitoring? I mean, I'm sitting at my desk at home right now, so that's a little different from going out in the field. I do really prefer in my reporting to get out as much as possible and talk to people, talk to communities and and workers and that, and I'm not doing that as much right now at all. Um, So it has definitely shifted where I'm not going out and looking at old oil and gas wells with farmers, for example. I'm not meeting with... um, workers at their union hall. Um, So a lot of it's over the phone and trying to follow what's going on with different government and regulator decisions by refreshing the Alberta Energy Regulators announcements page. (laughs) It's journalism for me now. (laughs) When you reported on Orphan Wells for the Narwhal, you quoted the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, as saying, just because we're in a health crisis doesn't mean we can abandon the environmental crisis. And I just wonder how the federal message there jibes with the provincial actions on deregulating monitoring of oil and gas extraction. 
Yeah, I think the Prime Minister is really trying to walk a fine line between trying to curry some favor with the Alberta government and provide support for an industry that, like, without a doubt is struggling, but has been struggling for quite some time. And also not to seem as though he's just completely reneged on his climate and environmental promises that he's made in in previous campaigns. So it's one thing for him to say, um, we can't abandon the environment crisis, but it's another thing to give a billion dollars to the government of Alberta to give money to private companies who are going to clean up inactive wells that they should have been paying for themselves. A lot of people have been asking for the federal government to be more clear on whether there were any strings attached to that money, whether there was going to be any requirement that Alberta put in place regulations that would prevent this problem from becoming larger. It's easy to think, oh, now that there's a pandemic and there's this global supply glut, all these wells are suddenly becoming inactive because it's not profitable for producers. But in actual fact, the the number of inactive wells has been growing a lot <laughs> for many years. Even when oil prices were, you know, $100 a barrel, there were still more and more inactive wells across the landscape in Alberta. So I think that there's going to be increasing pressure on the federal government to actually ask for a concrete plan from Alberta. That's your Canada land. Is it something that you're glad exists that uh, you want to support? We could use your support. Just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And in moments, you can be supporting us. Five bucks a month Canadian gets you ad-free podcast and some other stuff. You can also just send us support at support at canadalandshow.com. You can email me about our stuff at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. I can't stress enough that you need to listen to the current season of Commons on the pandemic, looking at long-term care. It is bracing. It is important to listen to it, and it's really well-made. Oppo has a new episode up this week on Tuesday. Check it out. Keep an eye on Ottawa. Listen to Oppo. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.